You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. So uh, before we get started, a couple of announcements. One is Film Club. Starts Thursday, 7.30. They're watching everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, basically, you pre-watch the movie, show up at Hopheads, which is a bar over on Brazemain, and have interesting, non-snooty discussion about the film, i.e. the movie. Um, I promise it's good. Actually, uh, our newest pastor on staff that we hired back in the fall, Lauren, she was telling us in staff meeting on Tuesday that one of the major reasons that she and her husband like really stuck at Redemption and love it so much is because they jumped into film club very early on. Um, if you're new here trying to find your place, just trying to find some people and see how weird we are or are not, this is a great place. If you just like movies, if you just like beer, 7.30, Thursday, Hopheads. Uh, they meet for four different movies, four different weeks. You can look at redemptionhou.com slash today, which is the link up behind me, and find out information there. Um, number two, youth group is resuming this Sunday, 2 p.m. Um, if you have teenagers, no teenagers, everybody from sixth grade to 12th grade, uh, that you want to know the radically inclusive vision of hope that we think Jesus has for everyone, um, our youth group is for you. It's for your neighbors. It's for your coworkers. Um, bring them uh, or send them or connect them to Lauren. Okay, uh, third and finally, uh, we do connect cards around here. It's the easiest way for me to know who you are and the rest of the staff to know who you are. Um, we care a whole lot about people. That's the whole purpose of this morning's message. Um, and one of the uh, simplest ways for us to try to care about you as an actual person and not just a face um, in a seat is for you to fill one of these out. There's a box that says connect cards here on the right. If you'll just drop that in, it's the easiest way for us to follow up and say, hey, who are you? Can we pray for you? Can we help you find some people that might love you here like we aspire to love each other? Connect card. Um, all that said, uh, let's jump in. So we've been in a series in Genesis for, I guess this is week number three. And basically what we're doing is we're taking the first three chapters of Genesis that are a little weird and a little terrifying and trying to say, wait, uh, what do these actually mean? Um, I love these first three chapters of Genesis partially because every branch of theology, like whether you're talking Eastern or Western, in the West, whether you're talking Roman Catholic or Evangelical or Mainline, every tradition in the Christian church puts tons of weight on how they interpret Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. So what we're doing is we're doing a little bit of a grab bag series where um, for the next several weeks we are um, looking at important, significant aspects of these three chapters. Last week we talked about 
the Enuma Elish. It was long and complex and super nerdy, but if you're into that kind of thing, uh, hopefully it was helpful. This week, we are going to talk about loneliness. Um, how would you react if I told you I was lonely? This is a little bit of a hypothetical, but like whether I'm, whether I'm up here on the stage and I say, hey guys, I've got a grand confession to make, I'm desperately lonely. Maybe I said it on the stage, or maybe like we went out for coffee and I'm like, hey, welcome to Redemption, my name is Zach, I'm one of the pastors here. We exist to be a safe place for absolutely anyone to explore and encounter Jesus. Let me tell you that I'm lonely. Or maybe we've known each other for a while and we're like, Zach, how are you this week? How's life? It's been a while. Say, well, it's really good, I'm really busy, and I'm super lonely. Like, I, I wonder how you react to that, what that sparks in you, what it doesn't. Would you judge me? No, certainly not y'all. I don't have the judgmental types. Would you pity me? Would you just avoid it? Would you give me advice? Maybe a better question instead of like, what would you do if I told you that I was lonely? Um, maybe the actual pertinent question is, what do you do when you're lonely? And some of you are like, I'm never lonely. I'm just an introvert. Um, like, I get it. I'm a little bit introverted as well, um, which is funny because I'm like up here on stage and yapping at y'all all the time. But, but there's like, it's, it's easier uh, to just talk a lot at people. Um, because it just controls things and like I don't have to actually hear you and know you and I get to like control everything about what you see about me, right? And I try to do that in wise ways and non-shady ways. Um, but, but I get a little bit of the introvert uh, persuasion and I'm married to an introvert. But still, the introverts that I know well, that know themselves well, pretty consistently say, yeah, sometimes... I'm deeply lonely. So I guess my suggestion is, my presumption is, my assumption is that all of us are pretty lonely at significant periods in our lives. And if you're not, my suggestion, right? I, I, I don't know you, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm way off base, and the sermon will just be a waste of the next two hours of your life. Um, but what do you do when you're lonely? Because I think you're lonely sometimes in significant ways. And if you think you're never lonely, maybe that's just a sign that you're avoiding it somehow. Okay, Here, here's what I think I do. Because I don't actually feel lonely a whole lot because I block it out, I avoid it, I bury it, I Netflix it, I medicate it with like whatever indulgence. Like I just, I work more or I make up a new hobby or I decided to start a company or something. That's just crazy things throughout my life that sometimes are really just coping mechanisms for the fact that I'm lonely. So I, I wonder if whatever it really provokes in you, if you'll give yourself the space to say, wait, how do I react when people like really just uh, unvarnishly and vulnerably say, I'm lonely, how you react to me is often how you react to yourself. And you, if you don't know how to react to me when I tell you that I'm lonely, it's probably because you don't know how to react to yourself when you're lonely. And the third line of questions that I would ask to kind of expose all of this in us is, what do you think that God thinks of you 
when you're lonely, or hypothetically, for those of you who never struggle with any loneliness, what would you think that God thought of you if you happen to be really lonely? Would God care? Would God just say, hey, suck it up, buttercup. Be an adult. Kids get lonely. Men work. Like, I don't know. I don't know what God sounds like in your head. Would God think it was pathetic? Would God think it was childish? Now, I, I think these kinds of questions are very significant. So I'm going to ask them all the time. What do you think that God thinks? One of the most important parts uh, uh, of like our life as a church, one of, the, one of the most important things I do and one of the most important things you can do is rewire and reprogram the assumptions that we have about God. And one of the ways that we do that is we just start asking questions. How do I think God feels about such and such? How do I think God like reacts to me? How do, how do I think he sees me if I experience this, struggle with this, feel this, encounter this, struggle with this, like wh- whatever the case may be, what is God's like facial expression towards me in this moment? I love this question, and I intend to ask it over and over and over and over and over and over and over as long as I am preaching to you guys and for you guys, because I want to ask it over and over and over and over and over and over and over for myself, because over and over and over, I find myself butting up against the fact that I have pretty toxic assumptions about God in my own heart and mind and soul. So I I don't know, like maybe you guys think that if I'm lonely, God's like caring and patient and cares about my loneliness. But can I just tell you like my gut reaction as, as a human, if I'm asking, wait, if I happen to be really lonely, what would I think that God's like facial expression towards that is? I think lots of times I would think, ah, he's indifferent. Or, or, or a little annoyed. Not, not annoyed so much by my emotions, but emo- annoyed that I'm not like purposeful enough. That I'm not like on mission enough. That I'm not like enough about discipleship. That I'm not like filled up enough by whatever quiet time, one-on-one time that I can have in the presence of God. Like if I'm lonely, then he's annoyed that I'm like navel gazing and not either being productive or being more spiritual. It seems in my like assumptions about God that loneliness is low down on a list of things that he might possibly care about me experiencing. Which is why I love Genesis chapter 2. Let's go. Chapter 2, starting in the second half of verse 4. So what we did last week was I preached all of Genesis 1 and the first three verses, uh, four verses of chapter 2, and we're going to pick up that narrative here. So I'm not going to go into this a whole lot, but one of the crazy things that happens in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is in Genesis 1, it tells um, a story that... uh, conflicts with chapter 2. Now, my point in pointing out that it does conflict is just to say the writers, the editors, the authors, the original audience of this knew that it conflicted and it did not bother them at all. 
They were not too dumb to notice that it conflicted. They were not too illiterate. They were not too like religiously minded to care that it conflicted. It was beside the point. They were getting at different things. But what happens in Genesis 1 is a different narrative than what happens in Genesis 2. Now, when I say it conflicts, it conflicts in some minor details. It doesn't conflict in any way that would indicate whether it's true or not or that it's not real or not. I absolutely believe that it's true and that it's real and it's helpful. But I think seeing some of these points of conflict actually illuminates the fact that sometimes what we think the text is about is not at all what the text is actually about. Now, just for um, uh, the, to kind of finish my aside here, the conflict is just, just look at the order of events. In Genesis 1, you have an, a very clear order of events. Uh, separate light from darkness, separate uh, earth from waters, separate... Um, like all these different things, we, we create the spaces, and then in days uh, four, five, and six, we fill the spaces. We fill the sky, we fill the water, we fill the land, and we uh, put things in their various places to rule over um, the various things, right? So uh, it's creation of like real life and the things that aren't really alive. Now, in that creation order, we have beasts created and then humans, and then you come to chapter two here. Uh, before there's beasts, before there's plants, before there's anything. And I just want to point out, this doesn't bother me at all. It didn't bother the earliest church at all. It didn't bother the Israelites at all. And I think that that fact can do a whole lot to steal your own minds and souls to say, wait, this is true. How is it true? Okay. I went into some more of that last week. That's just a teaser. I'm not going into that entirely this week because we have different purposes. On the day the Lord God made the earth and sky, before any wild plants appeared on the earth, so before plants, before any field crops grew, because the Lord God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land. Though a stream rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. So before any other beasts, before any plants, God created the human, the Adam, um, one of the reasons that uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is so contentious is because it defines sin. And in chapter 3, in the next couple of weeks, we will get to the concept of like, what is sin and what does Genesis actually say about sin? One of the other things that it does is it defines like gender in really ways. And particularly in today's political environment, uh, we, we have real questions about gender. And we have preachers insisting that thus saith the Lord and thus saith Genesis. And so Sometime in the next two weeks, I haven't entirely decided on the order, but either next week or the week after, we're going to do sin. And one of those other weeks, we're going to do, like, what does Genesis 1, 2, and 3 actually say about gender? Because theologically, like, whole traditions are built on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and what they say about sin and what they say about gender. Uh, you should come back. But before the Lord God formed the human, the Adam from the topsoil, from the Adam... God creates Adam from Adamah. He, right, this, this is Hebrew, but he's creating the human from our English word, the humus. Um, and he breathes life into him, and the human came to life. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and then he put there the human he had formed. 
So Adam wasn't created in the Garden of Eden. Apparently, Adam, the human, was created and then placed in Eden in the Garden. In this fertile land, the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit. He also grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's all sorts of every beautiful tree, all sorts of edible fruit. He also grew a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. We will get back to that when we come to the sin chapter. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it, to work it and to protect it. The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all the garden's trees. Now, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day that you eat of it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. Okay, so pause here. We're going to stick on verse 18 for a while. But remember in the context, this is the very first human that Old Testament is telling us God created. So forms out of the clay, he breathes his own life into this like clump of clay that's now a human, and now he puts it in the Garden of Eden. He says, work together with me. And the first command he says is, eat, 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 eat. Gorge yourself, feast yourself. Eating, you will eat on all the trees of, on all the fruit that's good for eating in all of the garden's trees. Just stay away from the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil because when you eat it, you will die dead. You will really importantly die. Okay, so last week, um, we talked a whole lot about human purpose. And one of the things that I argued based on ancient Near Eastern contexts was that what Genesis 1 was clearly displaying to us was what the purpose of being human was. And, And the purpose of being human in the mind of Genesis 1, is that we are magnificently and shockingly made to be co-creators with the creator of the universe. That we are made to rule and to reign in his name and in his place and together with him over the whole rest of the cosmos. God has said, I'm going to create, but I want you to continue helping me create. I'm going to make history, but actually I want you to be owners of history. I want you to take responsibility. I want you to work. I want you to partner together with me. You're equity stakeholders in this grand enterprise. This is human purpose according to Genesis 1. Now, here in Genesis 2, God creates from the ground up. He creates from the earth, from the clay, breathes his very own spirit, his very own breath, his very own life into the nostrils of the human and says, now, finally, this one is truly alive once he takes his first breath. And then, from there, he puts this Adam, this, this human, in the garden and says, your purpose is to work together with me in this garden, in this little slice, to work, to till, to cultivate, to protect. Okay, so, so there's purpose in two ways, purpose to create history and purpose on a micro scale to take care of the created world and to continue cultivating and co-creating together with God, although with one human, it's in a very limited way. Actually, this is a little bit helpful even in and of itself. God creates humanity to care for history, 
God creates individual humans to care for little slices, little micro-histories, little neighborhoods of history. And yet even in that, the Lord God said, it is not good that the Adam, that the human, is alone. I will make him a helper that's perfect for him. Now, uh, this morning is not about gender. One of the things that happens in the gender conversation that we will have in the next few weeks is this helper is often used to denigrate. Well, women are just helpers. Like the men are the real leaders and the women are helpers. The problem is God calls himself a helper all over the place. Like this word, this helper here is more often used for the Lord God in the Old Testament than it is for anything else. So if it's like a title of subjugation, it's really weird that that's its usage. Anyway, my my point here this morning is that this idea of what a helper is, is it's a partner. It's a co-creator. God creates the Adam. He says, I'm going to give you ownership of history, and yet this is something that you cannot do alone. You cannot own all of this as an individual. You cannot be fully and truly and beautifully human on your own. You need someone else that's fit for you, that's appropriate for you, that's compatible with you, that can partner together with you, that can help you. So God looks at loneliness of this initial human which this initial human may not have even been aware of. He may not have even been feeling any of the loneliness quite yet. But even before any of the loneliness is felt or articulated or said anything else about, God looks at the solitude, at the aloneness, and said, wait, 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 wait. Something is not right here. It's not that Adam feels so alone and he cries out in his loneliness, God, I need a suitable helper. Before that even happens, God says proactively and selflessly and lovingly, I want this one to have a real partner, a coworker, a co-conspirator, a co-creator of history. Now, um, As you might remember in chapter one, God goes through the days and he creates, and he creates, and he calls it good. He creates again, and he calls it good, and he calls it good again. And he creates again, and he calls it good, and he creates again, and he calls it good, and then finally on the sixth day, he creates the, the crowning jewel of all of his creation, the human in his own image, male and female. He created this human, and then he looks at everything that he has made, and he says, this is supremely good. So here in chapter two, this is pre-sin of any human. This is pre-brokenness. This is human placed in this garden temple to commune with God, to serve directly in God's presence. One of the themes that's built throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament, as God actually does create a temple, everything in the inner place of the temple reflects something in the Garden of Eden. The intimacy that happens in the Holy of Holies in the temple is a recreation of what's happening here in the garden. This is a garden temple. Holiness and spiritual life and intimacy with God and purpose of working and partnering together with God and cultivating and no sin. 
And everything is supremely good. This is the context. A supremely good creation where the one human has perfect divine intimacy and even then God looks and says, this isn't good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's supremely good. No, 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 wait. Something is not good. Even sinless solitude in a supremely good world is not good good. Okay, so before we've ever gotten to the narrative of sin and redemption, before we've ever gotten to Jesus, and I always want to get to Jesus, I love Jesus, right? I'm not asking us to exclude Jesus, but before we get to any of that, the scriptures have already undermined significant aspects of like our basic assumptions about religion and spirituality. Because the vast majority of us have had it beaten into our heads that it doesn't matter what anyone else does, doesn't matter about any of your relationships, your religion is a private affair between you and God. And as long as you and God have intimacy, as long as you and God are doing your thing, as long as you and God dot, 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 as long as you think the right things about God, as long as you say the right prayers to God, as long as you have the right posture to God, as long as you don't adopt some sort of woke gospel heretical nonsense, uh, which I say tongue-in-cheek, as long as whatever assumptions that we make between you and God, then everything will be good. And so then, when we think about, like, what is my religious life? Like, what does Jesus really want from me? What does the God of the universe want from me today? Maybe overall in my life, but even specifically, what does he want from me today? More often than not, our default answer has to do with something, well, me and God. He, he wants me to give more money directly to him, although I have no idea how that works. Um, he wants me to say more words directly to him. I do know how that works. He wants me to just repent inwardly in my heart. That, that makes sense. But like the vast majority of our religion, of our repentance, of our spiritual striving, and, and I'm not against spiritual striving. Let's strive, let's work, let's do everything we find in our own power to draw near to God, to cling to him, to grow, to worship him, to be like really beautiful followers of Jesus. And yet when we think about these things, so often they come back to things that have to do only and primarily with solitude, with isolation, with me and God. And from the very beginning, in a supremely good world, when this human had him and God, God still looked at it and said, no, 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 that, that, that won't do. That's not good. That's just not going to work. One of the major reasons that redemption exists is this conviction. The world doesn't need more production companies. Nothing against production companies. I hope there are better ones to come. I hope some of you guys start awesome production companies. But I don't think like God's grand plan of redemption necessarily needs more production companies. In the same way, I don't think God's grand plan of redemption needs more churches that are basically production companies. It doesn't need more people to gather audiences and yell at them for an hour from a stage. It doesn't need more musicians to 
make their gigs by playing music for a captive, passive audience in a transactional way. Like we, we don't need churches like that. There are great churches like that, fine churches like that, churches that execute on so many things better than we do. They're clearer, they're shorter, they're easier to jump into. Like, let's go find those churches if that's what we want. The whole conviction of why we decided to start redemption when we did is encapsulated in this idea that it's not good to be alone. It's encapsulated in this idea that somehow love is, in fact, our religion. That somehow what we need is more of each other. Right? Lots of times we show up to church and we're like, I need the message, or I need the music, or I need the youth program, or I need, like, whatever. We, we have these needs. Or if we get a little bit more like spiritual than that, we're like, well, I need this godly, humble servant leader, Zach McCoy. <laughs> I know that's why y'all are here, right? Uh, obviously, tongue in cheek once again. Um, but like we can even humanize that a little bit, but we still don't get to this reciprocality. Like sometimes, like I started to say for better or worse, but it's only for worse. Sometimes, somehow, we convince you guys that y'all need us, but I don't really need you. If, if Genesis is right, which it is, and I'm going to argue that it is, and I'm going to show you even a little bit more biblical theology here in a moment, that, that it's even more right than maybe you've yet grasped. If it's right, then like somehow our gatherings, our time together, our churchness has to go beyond our Instagram campaigns and our logo, has to go beyond our bank account and our legal entity, has to go beyond our podcast and me yelling at you guys, has to somehow become relational, somehow has to become we need each other. Y'all need me, and I need you, and you need you, and you need you, and you need you, and you need you. Like, in all the different beautiful directions of actual human connection. Now, I want to argue here in just a second that we cannot be Christian, not just healthily Christian, but we cannot be Christian without this. But Genesis is saying we cannot be healthily human without this. To be human is to exist in relationships. This is not beside the fact. This isn't beyond the point. This isn't just a nice consequence of, well, when we worship together, then one of the nice side effects of church is, hey, I meet some nice people that kind of believe the same things. No, no, no. Like the whole purpose of church needs to be somehow about community. Not programs, not excellence, not even theology, but somehow community, because we were made for communion. Let me, let me give you just two minutes here. It's going to be longer than two minutes, but two minutes. I'm going to try to be short. Of, of how we see this in the New Testament. Right? Y'all understand um, that what's happening here is God comes and he says, oh, something's wrong. 
Something is not good. How do I fix it? And he performs the first ever wedding. Now, my point is not to say that all of us need to not be single and we all need to get married. That's actually not the Bible's point at all. Um, But this wedding metaphor is significant. So I do have to say it's not just about being wedded. And I do also have to say that the wedding metaphor is inescapable and very, very important. Right? So all that's happened here in Genesis 2 is God's given one command. Hey, eat! And he's given a second command. But don't eat over here because you'll like really die. And then the next thing that he teaches the human the next thing in the course of all human events is, hey, by the way, like solitude's really poisonous for you and you need a partner. And he does a wedding. We don't have like strict chronology or timeline here, but we're talking just a couple of verses. Like one of the very first things God ever wanted to teach humanity was, hey, let me teach you about this awesome little thing called relationships. Which sounds a little cheesy, but y'all remember Jesus' first miracle? First miracle in the Gospel of John. John's very uh, deliberate in telling us that this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. And that first miracle is turning water to wine. But the location of turning water to wine is very significant because he takes his disciples. He's gathered his first 12 followers. They're like, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the dude. Maybe this is God incarnate. Maybe they didn't quite know that yet. I'm being a little uh, um, anachronistic, but you get the point. They have some sort of hopes, and Jesus gathered them, and he says, now I'm going to teach you something utterly important. Like, I like to think about it like when you show up at work on your very first day of your, like, big new job, like you've graduated, you've passed, like, the important tests, like the PE or your CPA exam or the bar or, like, your MLE stuff, like, whatever, whatever it is, and you show up, and they're going to, like, say, okay, this is it, let's do it, and, and you've got, like, a mentor, and he's the best mentor that's ever walked the face of the earth, and he's like, okay, my 12 interns, I'm going to teach you how to do what I do, because one of these days, you're going to surpass me, which is what Jesus does and what he says and how he teaches them. And he says, hey, we're going to have our very first outing. I'm going to show you something magnificent. With all of that, don't you think it's important what what he's doing? Like the, the thing that he chooses to do on this first day might be illuminating in what his grand plan is. And he takes his 12 disciples and he says, let's go to a wedding together. And he starts to teach them repeatedly and in various ways that divine purpose for humanity has always been and still is together with Jesus and in Jesus. Divine purpose for humanity is always some sort of grand celebratory feast of togetherness and love and joy and communion. Jesus takes his disciples to a wedding to prove to them a point about the centrality of love and relationality and relationships in the cosmos. 
in God's grand plan, in his ethics, in his hopes and dreams for every human life. You don't know what like the end times are all about? We're like worried of hellfire and brimstone and like meteors cost, like coming down and destroying and like engulfing the world in flames. Maybe we have some good reason, but maybe we misread some of that text, but uh, that's not this morning's sermon. But when we envision the end times, we forget that the way that the end times book, the revelation, that the end of the end times book, the end of revelation is also telling us about a grand celebratory feast of togetherness and unity and communion and joy. So we start with a wedding and a celebration of togetherness and partnership and love and joy. And Jesus' first miracle is a celebration of togetherness and feasting and saying, hey, I hope you guys get drunk with love, which sounds like crass, but is a direct quote from the Song of Solomon. Uh, Just cover my own rear here. Um, So we start in the very beginning with a wedding and a a celebration of relationality and communion. Jesus shows up and does the exact same thing as his first miracle. And then the followers of Jesus who tell us about how everything is eventually going to shake out say, hey, it's eventually going to be a grand feast of uh, togetherness and communion and joy. And then Jesus, when he gets to ethics, he says, oh yeah, like I know y'all are like torn up in knots about all that Old Testament stuff, but like here's the thing. If really you guys would just figure out how to love each other and love God, everything else would shake out and you wouldn't have to worry about anything else, I promise you. To such an extent that this is the great commandment that he gives his followers is, hey, really, guys, love each other. Like, literally, the only thing I'm after is love. And we're like, well, you need to read more definitions on love. Which, like, I say, and sometimes I'm jaded, and I'm, I'm sorry, but, like, I get emails like this from, like, people accusing me of preaching a woke gospel and needing to, like, study better definitions of love. Um, because I insist and we are trying to build a church on the simple, base, fundamental notion that our religion is love. It's connection. It's communion. It's basic humanity. Yes, we need Jesus, Absolutely, we need Jesus to fix that, to rescue us, to change our hearts, to forgive us for sins, to do all of that. And yet, somehow that can't be divorced from this central, fundamental, essential piece that our calling, our design, our purpose is and always has been love. Okay, so here's... here's, uh, Here's the thing. I need to jump out of my eight-minute, two-minute explanation. (laughs) Sorry. I have, like, in my notes here, hey, here's all these beyonds we don't have time for, (laughs) and then all the things I just said to you. (laughs) Oh, there's one more really good one, though. Y'all want it? (laughs) Right? Uh, One of the most famous passages in the whole New Testament is uh, this passage from the Old Testament, or New Testament, that I learned 
playing baseball as a kid. I was terrible at baseball because I couldn't see. I still can't see. Um, so I couldn't see the ball and couldn't hit, and I closed my eyes, and it was bad. Um, but the one thing that I did get out of playing baseball as a terrible baseball player when I was a kid was everybody got, gathered around and said the Lord's Prayer. And I memorized the Lord's Prayer as a child, and maybe they don't do this anymore, but I memorized the Lord's Prayer as a child because I was playing baseball. So everybody knows, how does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father. Like, it's hiding in plain sight everywhere in our scriptures. It is not my Father. Hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give, it, give me today my daily bread. Let's give us today our daily bread. It's not forgive me my trespasses. It's forgive us our trespasses. As I forgive those who have trespassed. No, no, no. As we have forgiven. Given, huh, as we have forgiven. Um, I'm from Texas. Uh, I really am from Texas. That's not a shot. Um, but like Jesus somehow makes our receipt of forgiveness, he ties that to our ability communally to forgive, which is uh, scary. Forgive us as we also have forgiven. He repeats elsewhere, because if you don't forgive, then you're not going to be forgiven, and that, that's why it's scary. But so, forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who have trespassed against us or sinned against us. Um, and lead us, lead me, lead me not into temptation, no, lead us not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, rescue me, save me from the evil one. No, 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 deliver us from the evil one. All throughout. Our religion is meant to be a team sport. Our prayer lives are meant to be a team sport. Our worship, our church. Like sometimes people are like, yeah, I had lunch with so-and-so and it was so good and we never really talked about the Bible and I kind of feel guilty about that, but we had such a good time, like, ah, you know, what are you gonna do? So, so here's the reason that I tell this story. I tell this version of this story quite a bit because what, what it what it reveals is so often we get together with people and, and basically, even in those interactions, we're like, that was a really healthy interaction if we read the Bible together. I'm not against reading the Bible together. You want to read the Bible with me? Let's do it. Absolutely. You want to read the Bible with, together with each other? Please do. And yet, God doesn't look at the first Adam and say, ah, it's not good. This human doesn't have a Bible. There's not going to be a Bible for thousands of years. It's not good that he doesn't have a worship service. It's not good that whatever you think your religion is, God looked at the isolation of the first human and said, this ain't good. You know what would be supremely good? as if he had a co-creator of history to love and be loved by, to know and be known by. That would be supremely good. Let's fix this whole thing and do that. Our enjoyment of each other, our knowing and being known, our loving and being loved, our time together is not just a side effect of a good church. It is the purpose and foundation of a good church. Without that, we can pretend we have fantastic religion. 
We can pretend we adhere to all the commandments. We can pretend that we are the most orthodox congregation that's ever seen the face of the earth. I I heard a guy say it this way once. If I speak in tongues of angels, preach y'all the best sermons on earth, things that only those who live perpetually in the presence of God could know, but I don't love, that's all rubbish. If I give away everything that I have, deliver my very body over to be burned, I sacrifice for you in committed, chosen sacrifice. But if I do that and don't love, which means you can do all of those things and those things are not constitutive of love. If I do those and don't love, that's all rubbish. Love is not everywhere. Love needs to be everywhere. Love is everywhere in our scriptures. And I just want to give you permission to like be lovers of people. Actually, I want to I give you a little bit of a challenge. I want to give you an, an appeal here in just the last couple of minutes. You do not need more permission to love the people around you. And I mean that in a little bit of a political way, but even beyond the political way. What I mean is that so many of us show up to church and we're like, ah, I hope church is good this morning. Could we redefine what church being good on a Sunday morning means? Who did you love this morning? Who did you connect to? Who did you let know you? Who are you curious about? Jesus redefines our ideas of family. So much so that when his mother and his brother and his sister show up outside a party and they're like, hey, Jesus, can we get some time with you? And the people came in and asked Jesus. He's like, nah, that's not my mother and my brother and my sisters. You want to know who my true mother and brother and sisters are? Those who are doing the will of God. Jesus radically redefines family in view of human purpose. He radically redefines family in a way that gives you permission to radically redefine family and say, y'all are my people. Now, part of this is I, I need you to take ownership of this church. Right? Like this church rising or falling, it thriving or failing, it being compelling or awful is sort of about me, but honestly it's not. I'm going to do everything I can as long as I'm the lead pastor here to undermine this just being a production. Sorry, it's just going to happen. It's not because productions are bad. It's because productions convince us that that's what church is. When relationality is what church is, I cannot do church alone. I am not the church. I cannot be the church alone. We are the church. We need each other in profound and beautiful ways. You don't need more permission from me. You don't need me to create new volunteer positions for you. You don't need me to do more for you in a transactional way. One of the hardest things about all of COVID has been that basically for a year plus, Mike and I turned this into a production show that you guys watched on YouTube. And I hated it even then, and we did some things to undermine it even then, some intentionally and some 
kind of uh, subconsciously. But as we've rebuilt, so many of us are so overwhelmed and so tired and so lonely, and we started coping with our loneliness in ways that just distract us from our loneliness and don't actually connect us to more people, but just say, no, 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 I need this program and I need this entertainment and I need this whatever. And I just beg you, invite you, appeal to you as humbly and lovingly and as peer-to-peer as I can, even though I'm the one on the stage. I need you. I need to know you. I need to be known by you. I cannot be truly and beautifully and healthily human without it. Even if you're lonely, even if you are not lonely, Look around. Just take a weird minute here. Look to your left, to your right. Look behind you. These people need you. We're dying in our isolation and in our loneliness and our quest for more stuff, for more programs, for more successful, easy, whatever. And we just need each other. If you want to know what spiritual fruit is, what the work of the Spirit of Jesus might be in your life, spiritual fruit exists if and only if you're figuring out how to love some more people around you. Would you become an inviter of people? Would you become a destroyer of loneliness? Would you become curious and gentle and tender and safe? Would you invite some people to your dinner table? Not because you're lonely. You're too good to be lonely. (laughs) But in mercy and in love to see that so many around you are so alone. And it is not good. Here's, Here's my actual last practical appeal. Um, Redemption has always been structured in two ways to live into relationships. One is we think that everybody serves, right? It's not because we need more volunteers. It's easier to run things without volunteers, honestly, a bunch of times, although thank you. Um, (laughs) Undermining myself here. Redemption has all these teams, partially because we think our kids need to know you, right? We ask for kids' volunteers over and over and over, not just out of desperation. We can hire babysitters. We have money in the bank. We, we, can, right? we, we can take care of the kids in a safe and fine way. We don't need more professionalization of the clergy. We need y'all. If you're here, and you've been here for a while, and redemption is your church home, like, would you help us? Would you let yourself be needed and join a team and commit and show up and let yourself be known and be here? If you're not on a team and you want to be on one, you can do it online or you can fill out one of the connect cards, put it in the box. Let us help you get plugged in. Let us actually be a community and not just a thing that Zach and Lauren and Mike and Brandon run 
on Sunday mornings. The second one is exactly like it. If you're here and you want this to be your church family, I want you to know people. Now, I think there are exceptional cases where we can do that without regularly and consistently and intentionally gathering together in things like our hub groups, right? If you really in good faith can say, hey, I have uh, easy ways to invite people around me into relationship with me, I have easy ways to get to know them and to love them and to build them up, and like I'm okay without a hub group, like I'm never going to shame you for not being in a hub group. I also realize that there are periods of life that it's very difficult for whatever constraints uh, to figure out how to be in a hub group. Nevertheless, I basically want to say to all of us, church is not Sunday mornings. Church is relationships. If you don't know people, get to know people. If you don't know anyone at Redemption or the only people that you spend time with at Redemption are the people in your like nuclear family, then like uh, that, that's okay, I don't want to shame you, I don't want to ask you not to stop coming, but I do want to say that you're not living into the beauty that I think Jesus has for you. Jesus has more hope for your loneliness, for your weary soul, for your isolation, for your ignoring the deep parts of you that like resonate with that just a little bit. Jesus has more salve and more hope and more joy for you in relationship than maybe you've let yourself try in a long time. Would you give hub groups another shot? If you've been here for a while and aren't in one, like just would, would you help us? Can we become a, hum, a, a, a community? In the mind of Genesis 1 and in the mind of Genesis 2, God has ordained us as co-creators, as owners, as active adults in this process of creating the world that he is trying to create based on relationships. Will you own that together with me? Let's pray. God, I need you. Um, God, I need you and I need people. Would you help that not to be a shameful thing, not a hard thing to say, not a hard thing to think, but a delightful thing? I need people. Huh. That's not a flaw, it's part of the design, it's a feature. God, I need people. God, I was made to love people. Would you help me to be a connoisseur, a champion, a co-owner, creatively and energetically making ways to know people? God, help me. Help us. Let your spirit work on us in these ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.